0: Hello out there. Yes, hello again, everyone, welcome back to Number the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, so what's happening?
1: Well, not much actually. We're just going to be talking about the 2008 leg of the of the Magic Tour. But uh, I think you had um, you wanted to talk about Record Store Day, right?
0: Yeah, I'm a little disgruntled today. We're recording <laughs> this. They just released the list of releases for the upcoming Record Store Day. 2022. And you got U2 on there with the celebration. Pearl Jam is releasing Live on Two Legs, which is their live album from 1998. The Who is releasing something. Bowie is releasing multiple releases. Grateful Dead. I checked the list and once again, no Bruce. And it it just seems to me like a missed opportunity. First of all, they're costing themselves money. I think I read, I'd have to go back to the list. Pearl Jam is doing like a 20,000 run of Live on Two Legs. It's free money, and and I don't understand why Bruce is one of the few artists not taking advantage of Record Store Day. How cool would it be to have December 12th, 1975 as one example on vinyl, or Anaheim 2000, or even <laughs> of some of the earlier would. releases, Passaic?
1: Of course uh, you would say Anaheim.
0: <laughs> well, that just happens to be
1: the one of the most re- recent releases. I think it would, that would be a very difficult one to do on vinyl considering the five pack there. But uh I ha- I had the thought that they should release 91978 on vinyl and call it Peace de Resistance.
0: <laughs> well, Just I go head to also, head with Someone it. brought that up today. Peace Day Resistance, the official version.
1: There you go. We're live in the promised land or any of the any of the famous of the 78 radio broadcast bootlegs.
0: Uh, I was a
1: teenage werewolf for uh Live. I don't know. What's the rock? I guess the rock, the rocks, really didn't have a, a f- too much of a famous bootleg, but
0: um, it's just a little frustrating. You two, every record store day has a release. Pearl Jam has been having them every, every record store day. The Dead, of course, Bowie, The Who, The Doors regularly.
1: Well, let me ask a question here. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of these are a previously unheard song or recording?
0: Some of it is very cool. The Who announced they're releasing today a 40th anniversary edition of It's Hard, and they're including a version of Eminence Front with Daltry on the vocals, which I had never heard of before, and I actually went and Googled it because I was like, is this out there? And I guess like a snippet was released by some Who superfan site a couple of years ago, but otherwise it's never been heard before.
1: Okay, so would you say the most of these releases are previously unheard or, or previously released on digital or in another format a long time ago?
0: I don't know fully. I mean, I think for each act, it's different. Take the Doors, they're doing an LA Woman LP set that is from their LA Woman box set, which is not otherwise available on vinyl, I don't believe. U2 has been repressing a lot of stuff from the early 80s and putting in some interesting stuff The version of the celebration, the U2 single that's going to be for Record Store Day, which was backed by Party Girl 40 years ago, has a live version of of Party Girl from 2015, which has not been released before, and also an outtake of a celebration that has not been released before. So I think every act is handling it differently, and nobody is suggesting that Bruce should be releasing Electric Nebraska For record store day although that would be super cool
1: (laughs) well yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at
0: if you look at what the dead is doing every record store day the dead release an entire show on vinyl bruce has got these shows already in the can as we like to say there's been how many archive releases none of them have been released on vinyl except if you include the first hammersmith which of course was not part of the archive series but it, it just it really it, it just seems like they're leaving free money on the table. These bands are charging good money for these releases and they are selling. So I just don't get it. But maybe they just don't plan far enough. Now, the Pearl Jam release is delayed until June. I believe that's a vinyl production problem, but it would just be so great to have Bruce participate with these other acts. And I, I don't know what would make that happen.
1: Well, as see what I was getting at was as someone who doesn't have a, a record player, I, so I have really no interest in the the content on the actual vinyl. I would be much more interested if they if you release something we never heard before. I thought the record store day release of of American Beauty, I guess that was fourteen. I thought that was that was phenomenal. It was four songs we had never heard before. They were from the High Hopes sessions. And they may not have been the four of the best songs he's ever done, but it was four songs we had never heard before. And that, that would definitely be more, more of interest to me.
0: I totally agree. And, and he did release some really cool stuff much earlier in the process for Record Store Day. It's, it's really weird because as Record Store Day has just gotten so huge now and it, it is massive,
1: See, maybe he w- he was into it, you know, back when it was cool and indie, and now it's all mainstream, and he's like, no, I'm too cool for that. <laughs> yeah, <I'll>, exactly.
0: <laughs> but yeah... It, because it is, he's not Mr. Mainstream.
1: Yeah, it would be really cool to see him participate, and even I would probably buy a, a four-platter version of, uh, of I don't know, whatever show that they choose to release, but I guess
0: it's just not going to happen this year. It's just so funny, because every time the list comes out, I'm always like... Bruce, is he on here? Is he on here? Nope, he's not on here. So, well, they, what what
1: song on uh on Letter to You did he originally say was going to be like a Letter Store Day or a Letter Store Day record store day release? Wasn't was it um, Janie needs a shooter? They they actually oh yes, he as,
0: did say that. You're right, he did yeah. say that originally he was going to just put out Janie needs a shooter for record store day. And he thought it was too special. And you can understand that because it wound up on an actual album. But as we know, there are hundreds of outtakes. There are <laughs> 50 or 60 archive shows at this point that they, they certainly have the material. 70. Seventy, Seventy. Okay. They Over certainly Seventy. had the material to put out and it, it just happened that, that it was today that the list came out. So I was like, all right, I'm going to mention that, but <laughs> it, it sort of is what it is. I mean, as they say, I, it, yes. Th- Uh, We would buy it. Let's just just (laughs) say that. If if they put it out, we will buy it.
1: Definitely buy it. Anyway, Bruce was also, he also talked to your guy, Eddie Vedder, for what, half an hour or the other day. And I didn't, I got to admit, I still haven't seen it. So I'm going to ask you to give me the highlights.
0: Sure. It was a conversation about Ed's album, Earthling, which I happen to really like. And the talk between them wasn't really 30 minutes long because it was interspersed with some of the songs. But I definitely thought it was interesting. Ed, as it relates to Bruce, talked about how he thought Letter to You was really a marvel. He he was like, it was recorded in seven days. And Bruce was like, no, it was recorded in four. And Ed was like, (laughs) he couldn't conceive of it. And Bruce did like Ed's album. It sounded quite a bit. Uh, He specifically brought up the song The Haves, which is a love song that he liked. And it was just great to see.
1: I, I can imagine.
0: Ed is on tour now. It happens that they were supposed to be out here on the West Coast this week, and the shows are canceled due to COVID. Well, rescheduled, I should say. They're rescheduled because uh, Josh Klinghoffer came down with COVID, one of Ed's band members in Chicago, and then it, it apparently spread, and they had to postpone two shows, which really goes to show, again, what these artists are, are facing with the touring and, and perhaps provide some insight into why Bruce, Just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, you had told me it's like a what a two week tour and a month. It was a month, but they had two weeks into. They didn't even get two weeks before they had postponements.
1: And that's that's not exactly a a big band, right? I mean, it's uh what five guys on there?
0: You know, I really don't know off the top of my head. It's certainly not a huge band. It may be six people. I I haven't seen them yet (laughs) because the shows are postponed. So it goes to show, and and Glenn Hansard, who is in the band and who's fabulous, he posted on Instagram yesterday that they were, this was their touring process, hotel, into the car, into the venue, end of show, into the car, back to the hotel, basically without interacting with anyone. Nobody allowed backstage, nothing, and still somehow COVID has entered the picture, so Going back to our episode when we were talking about Bruce canceling the tour and and I even said to you what happens in Amsterdam when Landau is sitting there and someone comes in and tells him Roy and Gary just tested positive and they can't go out on the stage. That actually happened to Ed apparently in Chicago because Josh Klinghoffer played the first night and then the next night, the second show, the show started. Josh was not on stage and Ed ultimately said that Josh had COVID and couldn't make the show I guess they elected and they do have a total of 4 guitarists including at uh, just to play of the show without Josh even though he was a major loss but then after it spread it, it made the the other shows unplayable.
1: Yeah, so I guess one one band member was expendable but any more than that and I don't consider anybody in the Eastery band to be expendable at all like maybe and unfortunately maybe Steven cuz he's he's hasn't toured with them uh, for most of 14 and but still you know, Gary or Roy or, or Max—that's that would be a big hole to fill. And well, you certainly can't play a show without Max. No, but you, but if if you have their their tech on backup, or if you or if you fly in Jay or something, that's that's no longer the legendary East Street band.
0: Oh, and it's interesting you mentioned that because the War on Drugs had a show. I think it may have been even the same night as they were in Chicago as well. And their tour manager played bass for the entire show because their bassist, Dave Hartley, was out. I don't know if that was a COVID thing, but clearly it's a struggle right now. And Pete Townsend just talked about this in Rolling Stone, the issues with insurance and and that they're basically being forced to also tour without interacting with anyone. Some of these acts have shows to make up, Pearl Jam, The Who, and, and other acts, Bruce, he would have had to go out. They were going to be on a fairly tight schedule in, in Europe, as far as we understand it. And the other thing is, if he had to make up shows, of course, they just can't cram shows in anymore because he needs more recovery time.
1: I think they made the right decision. And uh, could they have done something more in the United States later on? Maybe. But they've already made that decision. And it's just time to look at, look ahead to 23.
0: Yeah, I, I would have probably, if I was them, at least held out some hope for the United States because it wasn't starting until August, but perhaps that just wasn't enough shows for them to rev up the entire machine. (laughs) It was going to be what 12 or 14 shows in the United States because they were going to be stadium shows. Unfortunately it's where we're at. I'm I got a lot of shows coming up. I hope that they will not be impacted already. I've had Ed's tour impacted. We certainly hope that everyone In the band and any one part of Ed's crew who were sick are are healthy and recovering. And fans in general are just going to have to deal with uncertainty. You could be in a venue, it appears right now, and find out that the show is postponed. This is touring in 2022.
1: (laughs) Yet there are still still acts announcing tours, but uh, good luck to them.
0: (laughs) Well, as I think we discussed back in January, certain acts have to tour. For one thing, some of them have shows that need to be made up. Those shows are all stacked up. And secondly, there are tours going on because artists are in desperate need of the financial aspect of touring. As we know, Bruce does not have to worry about that. Yeah, Bruce is is not in financial straits, to say the least. Well, even now, when he when he did that Hall of Fame, when he did the Hall of Fame induction speech and he said, if he went crazy and blew all his money, I don't even think he couldn't blow all his money now. If he tried, that would take a while. Yeah, that would take a while.
1: Get some gold plated leashes on some tigers. (laughs) I think that's how it is in the Billy in the uh, God. What's her name? The royal song. I forget her name. Lord. Come on. Lord. Yeah. Okay.
0: Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Numpet the Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality, so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great, too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
1: Anyway, let's move let's on m- to, yes. let's, or let's move back to 2008.
0: <laughs> so we're going to pick up on the Magic Tour beginning in Hartford, the first show of 2008. I was still on the West Coast at that point. We're, you were at Hartford, right?
1: Yeah, thought you would say something like uh, 2008 began the same place 2007 began. It did. Yes, and so it, they came out, and they, uh, it was actually a really strong set for a uh, Oftentimes, when uh, after they're off for a few months and they they, they just come back to get the road legs at the beginning of the of the next leg a little shaky a little rusty you know or or and or a standard set, but this time they didn't have it they came out strong so young and in love in, in the with the tour debut also played loose ends and uh janie don't you lose heart which Bruce and nils actually did a duet on and which was really cool and it was a strong set just f- from the get go and I almost went home and said, "Oh, I, I got to go see more shows," but uh, I uh, I held off. <laughs> I was I already had tickets for like four or five more shows, and I think I think that worked for, worked quite well.
0: From there, they went through more cities in the Northeast. They also hit Hamilton in Montreal and Montreal in Canada. They arrived. I believe both of us were at the Coliseum show in uh, in March on March 10th which wasn't a particularly remarkable show but they were playing so well at that point it was it was a very very satisfying show.
1: Right. Well, one thing after they after that hot start in, in Hartford playing the couple of playing tracks, they seemed to kind of backtrack so to speak into mostly sticking with the with the usual standards and but then in Nestle Coliseum they busted out Incident on 57th Street and that was that was pretty damn cool.
0: We did skip over one thing that does Bear mention and that was on March sixth in Rochester, Rosalita was played off a sign request, which of course okay. had reversed the the antipathy he seemed to have towards signs from the reunion tour, and that set off a change in the tour that would reverberate for the rest of the year. And the following year. Yes.
1: That's a good call. Well, I mean, he had actually him to accept some of the some of the signs at the end of the rising tour I remember at the at that wild Philly show uh, August August 11 2003 he referenced I'm going down an incident thanks to those gorgeous beautiful homemade signs and <laughs> well, so I think he he kind of warmed up to them and then he then he embraced them they became a basically a standard part of the show from I don't know I guess it, it kind of started slowly and but then you yeah. had the whole it was
0: really during the summer that it really yeah became a thing
1: yeah when i mean especially when you listen to or at some of the i mean the st louis show that we're going to spend half an hour talking about later um where he has he's collecting signs and he got max playing the drum beat and for about what two two and a half minutes while he collects signs so and then of course in 2009 when he did raise your hand in that while he collected signs so so yeah from small things big things one day come
0: After the Coliseum, they they moved on. They they headed to the Midwest in Milwaukee. He debuted Streets of Fire, but it's the next show that we're really going to focus on right now, and that was the March twentieth, (laughs) two thousand and eight show, which of course is an archive release. And then we just talked. Yeah, we just talked about it for like twenty minutes. Yeah, we. I mean, we should probably just. it's, It's it's a setup for the rest of the tour, I think, because obviously the emotional aspects of the evening. I think it's important that we focus on. Danny's guest appearance here and as we discussed at the time when the archive came out he guested on promised land and spurred in the night and sandy in the main set and then more in the encores
1: it wasn't it was an emotional show i think people were glad to see him and if i remember correctly he wasn't looking very good but he was able to to play for what nine ten songs and it was a good send-off for him
0: Yeah, it's so good that was able to happen. I think we discussed it on the show once before. Jason Federici, Danny's son, has talked about how Max and Becky Weinberg in particular went to the hospital to encourage Danny to get on the plane and go with them to Indianapolis. They must have known at that point that he was nearing the end. And it just, looking at it from afar, must have provided a a sense of closure. as, As we talked about for the Boston show the last time, their their family, their brothers, and I, I think that it must have been an incredibly powerful experience for them all, especially Danny, to to have one last time all together.
1: Totally agree, and and Bruce pulled out Sandy again for him, and that was a beautiful performance. They actually released it at the, I don't want to say at the time, but later that year in that Magic Tour highlights for four song EP. And that was wonderful to see. And I think proceeds from that went to the Danny Fund.
0: And the next show was in Cincinnati. <laughs> at,
1: what? Yeah, let's talk about this.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it it reverberated obviously Danny's guest appearance. Now this is not a show I was at. I don't think you were in Cincinnati either, right?
1: I was not. I was not. It was a Saturday night, and I I was tempted. Checked out flights and such, but didn't didn't pull the pull any triggers.
0: This show was notable because, I guess. Bruce went through the entire set and the encores. The show didn't even hit two hours. And then maybe someone said something to him backstage because this, they were already starting to break down the stage, right?
1: Uh, that I don't know, but okay. probably.
0: But after American Land, the show was totally over. And then they hustled back on stage and, and did a version of Kitty's Back, which was uh, which made the show longer, still much shorter than most of the shows in this time period. But I, I think clearly the band must have ha- just been in a different state of mind than they normally are playing these shows because of what have taken place in Indianapolis.
1: Well, I remember just, I remember hearing that they were, it seemed like Bruce was just like at a breakneck speed, the whole show. And and then you, you do have a couple of short short songs in there. Candy's room. She's the one. Uh, but for the most part, it was, I'm pretty standard set. I don't know what was going on or maybe they had to get back for something on sunday i don't know but it was definitely definitely eyebrow raising at the time And but then they did come back uh columbus a couple of days later and put on a much stronger and longer show
0: that show also had the only ever version of you'll be coming down
1: yeah that's actually i would call that a, a nice little dark horse recording it was really good really good boole came out of that show and very excellent. I love that version of You'll Be Coming Down. It's one of these, one of these songs. I wish he played that more. But of course, I think that ship sailed. But it is a mystery that it it wasn't done more. And hey, it also included tour debuts of Something in the Night and Sherry Darling, a great incident.
0: One other thing to mention from around this time: Cincinnati marked the start of 18 consecutive shows with a different opener. Now, I they headed out to the West Coast after Columbus. And it was it was pretty remarkable because he was obviously doing it on purpose. There there is no question about it. Especially as as we move on here, there are some songs that open shows that really have never been used as an opener, and I don't think they've been used again. A uh, perfect example: after Portland, they went to Seattle, and the show in Seattle opened with "Trapped." That that is the first and only time "Trapped" has opened a show, right? I believe so.
1: That's that was that was pretty cool. That's actually a really. Really interesting opener because it starts so it doesn't explode. It, it's kind of a kind of a slow burn
0: and, until the first chorus. I can't remember. I think that Ed Eddie Vetter may have had something to do with that. He was at that show and he lives in Seattle. And I think he may have requested Trapped. I, I remember hearing that story somewhere way back when. But you're right. It's it, it's a really interesting and unusual opener.
1: I really like it. Because because of that slow burn, it has a different feel, and it, and it's the release is actually almost bigger than had he just come crashing in with say out in the street.
0: Matt, if you think about it from the standpoint of the narrative, which we spent a lot of time talking about in the last episode, opening with trapped and going into is there anybody alive out there <laughs> radio nowhere really puts a different spin on things.
1: That's true. That's true. But uh, from a momentum point of view, that was that's a hell of a hell of a segue.
0: And also in that show, uh, The Promised Land was followed by Waiting on a Sunny Day. That's pretty normal. But then your own worst enemy into point blank into Devil's Arcade. So I don't know. Maybe he was in a dark mood that night. That is some that's that's pretty bleak.
1: Yeah, it is. And uh, but hey, coming out of Sunny Day, I guess uh, with the the crowd getting into it, I guess maybe not the people of the hardcores in the pit, but rest of the audience really into it. Well, we got to talk about the next show in Vancouver on March thirty first, if only because the tour debut of our of our podcast namesake.
0: Yes, I, I, well that that was the first performance ever with the full East Street Band, right?
1: Yes, you are correct, sir. You because it had correct. been played
0: at the Christmas shows.
1: Yeah, so this was the first time it was actually just done with Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band,
0: and I think well, wasn't
1: that an wasn't that an Eddie Vedder request? Was he also in Vancouver? somebody if possible it was very close to some, Seattle somebody requested it out of that uh Seattle music scene maybe it wasn't Eddie but it might have been somebody else and I wish I could remember but I don't
0: well it was very cool that he played that uh, unfortunately I wasn't in Vancouver that we heard that was a hot show
1: yes it was and I remember that was uh Jim's <laughs> tried to do uh they were trying to do some interesting stuff with with, with audio bootlegs at the time, they were actually taking the 2496 audio and putting them onto DVDs and making that set of So instead of playing it on your CD player, you have to play it on your DVD player. And not really, it didn't really catch on. But I got to say it, that extra, the extra bandwidth in the audio, certainly it really filled the room. It was really cool how it felt.
0: That does sound cool. I don't think I ever heard those.
1: They, they, were, they were cool. They were cool. They don't, I don't know if they tried it anywhere else.
0: After Vancouver, they moved down here to California. And this was a great week in California with one of the shows really standing out. He he started in Sacramento uh, and the show opened with Spirit in the Night, continuing the different openers. That also, and this was really strange at the time, Spirit in the Night was played because it won a pick-the-song contest <laughs> from the local radio station. And when that started, we were like, "What? since when does he do stuff like that? But Spirit in the Night won and it opened the show and it, and it was a great opener.
1: Yeah, he did that at a few shows during that stretch and it was weird because very few very few fans at least that I that I knew even knew about it. It was one of these things where like who chose the songs and how did they even publicize it but they did it the next night in San Jose and fire one. That's kind yeah, of a decent, that decent was a welcome
0: choice. thing to see that San Jose show was a really hot show. And and of course there's a phenomenal IEM <laughs> from Hosorama.
1: Yeah. He did an amazing job. He recorded it and mixed it. And, and then of course, crystal cat stole it, but whatever crystal cat really did a lot of work on this tour. Not always, not always their best work, but they put out a lot of releases from that tour.
0: And then we arrived in Anaheim and uh, April 7th is, is a key show and obviously altered the history of the East Street Band because uh, a certain guest from this night would recur very often and, and later become a regular member in the future. At least we're a regular member for a short period of time. And, and that of course is Tom Morello. This was a show we were outside. We heard the sound check that they were rehearsing an electric version of Ghost of Tom Joad. It, it sounded insane. And, This was a really, really hot show with, again, an unusual opener. Light of day to open the show. (laughs) Fabulous.
1: Only other shows I can think of that he opened with light of day were like those Stone Pony gigs in 87.
0: It it was highly effective. And and speaking, this was a show where even though he made some changes, the again, a, a hard biting show, light of day into Radio Nowhere. Magic was bookended by Trapped and Murder Incorporated. I really thought those worked well together and from there the set sort of settled into the typical structure until he introduced Morello and really what followed was quite the moment. I think the entire crowd was stunned. It was unlike anything we'd ever seen at a Springsteen show. Of course he had never done Joe before with the band and Morello's playing just sent the crowd into a frenzy it was pretty remarkable. And, and of course, we all know that because it was later released as part of the Magic Tour highlights.
1: Right. I was excited just to hear about it because I remember in 98 that they were trying to get a version of Ghost of Tom Joad with the East Street Band together for tracks. So it was like 10 years later, they're, they're finally getting it. And then to hear what, what Morello did on, on guitar, that just took it you know way over the top. And it was just just tremendous. And I can't... I can't imagine what it would have been like just to see that for the first time and, and to see them gelling in this, in the <laughs> here Morello's guitar or theatrics or whatever you want to call it. Py- almost like pyrotechnics just going to town.
0: Totally insane. And let me just say, it wasn't just the crowd, the look on the faces of the East street band, including Bruce, when that was going on, it was, they, they were on another level and, it was one of those crazy, it only happens once moments. I know they've mm-hmm. repeated the ghost of Tom Joad many, many times, and and Morello was great, but that single performance w- was one of the best performances of the tour. It, it was it was just off the charts.
1: Right. So they so they made a good call, including that one on the on the Major Tour Highlights EP. That's for sure.
0: I, I think they knew what they had
1: there. Yes. <laughs> Well and then I mean didn't I hear rumors that they actually used some of that some of that recording to for the studio track on on High Hopes
0: or am I making that up Oh that I have not heard but you have better sources on those things than I do Oh okay
1: well that's that's what I think I heard but it but it's hard to pick out and it took them 5 years to get it I guess to get a recording of it in the studio but
0: it's worth it and leading into the five pack of Devil's Arcade, The Rising Last to Die, Long Walk Home in the Badlands that was, it, it It certainly elevated it. It was already working extremely well, as we talked about last time, but this elevated it into another sector altogether. It, it, this was one hell of a show. That <laughs> it, That's all I have to say. All right. All right. And then the
1: second night, come back, more well, Morello.
0: Interesting, because the second night, there was going to be more Morello. Bruce seemed to have lost track of the show the second night, because if you notice – Jode has played again, but what's missing after it? It's the first time that Devil's Arcade has dropped and also The Rising has dropped for the first time ever. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah.
0: That was that very notable. And as the show was going on, I do recall we were, we were talking about it, that the show was running very, very long it, it, because he included both Prove It and Because night, which generally had been switching off. Then he did She's the One, and even at the Promised Land, he did Brilliant Disguise, then he brought out Morello. I don't know if it was a time thing, if he planned to, to jettison Devil's Arcade and The Rising. I will say it was not—oh, uh, the, the handwritten set list is on Bruce Base, as it turns out. And yes, Devil's is. Arcade is not on there, but the rising was.
1: Right. So that actually be kind of foreshadowed what was, the, what was going to be happening later, a few weeks later, a few months later, uh, however you want to call it, describe Europe, where he would have more of a, like, I don't want to say a classic, but certainly an epic, like such as Incident or, or Racing in the Street or Backstreets in, in, in place of Devil's Arcade. I guess in, in, in European stadiums, Devil's Arcade might not have worked too well.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Devil's Arcade was not going to work in European stadiums. At, but the Rising being skipped was was a real shocker. Of course, it had never been skipped at that point. <laughs> and yeah,
1: even on Devil's and Dust, it hadn't been skipped.
0: Yeah, it was really... When you know a song is going to be played in a specific slot, suddenly when it's skipped, it, it's really quite jarring. Now, I think you and I are generally in favor... Except for maybe Born to Run, uh, there's no song that we feel needs to be played every night. But he had constructed this set very specifically, and The Rising was a key part of it. So the fact that it was not there definitely was w- was a change.
1: Well, I had a question I wanted to ask here. How was the segue from uh, from Tom Jode into Last to Die? I mean, usually he just slams right into Last to Die out of The Rising. How did it work here?
0: I happened to check this out earlier today because I hadn't heard it in a while. It's not a good recording, by the way. But at the end of Jody counted down and he did smash directly into Last to Die.
1: All right. So it served like The Rising. Yes, it did. After Anaheim, they head down to Texas for a couple shows. And I think that the show in Houston deserves a little a little discussion if just because Terry Song, the world debut, the live debut of Terry Song, and then he has a couple of friends. Alejandro Escobedo came out for Always a Friend, and then Joe Ely came out with All Just to Get To You. And uh Always a Friend, another another release of the uh Magic Tour Highlights EP.
0: Yeah, which was only four songs.
1: It was, <laughs> yeah, four songs it make I that think,
0: thing like 10 or 12 songs at the very minimum. I don't it know.
1: It should have been, I think, and I think two of them were covers. So <laughs> yeah, kind of an odd little release. But it was cool to see uh to see and hear the they're always a friend with the East Street band with Alejandro
0: leading them through the song so the Houston show was on April 14th then unfortunately on on April 17th as as we all know Danny Federici lost his battle with cancer and passed away that led to several shows being postponed while the band regrouped and and they held the funeral uh it the funeral was in Red Bank and and Bruce Performed. I, I did. Other people perform as well.
1: I don't know. He delivered a eulogy, though, in addition yeah. to the three songs.
0: Bruce performed "Sandy," "Across the Border," and "If I Should Fall Behind." Three unbelievably appropriate songs.
1: So then the tour was was resuming in Tampa, and to say this was going to be one of the most e- emotional shows of, of of the band's career would be an understatement. They had certainly other other nights have been emotional. I'm thinking back to the Lennon show in 1980, and even the last night of the reunion tour, but but nothing was going to be was going to be like
0: this. Very emotional night. Uh, sorry that I was not there, but it just wasn't something that was meant to be. And for everyone who was there, that that was just what was described—just pure emotion. The show opened with a tribute video to Danny, and then Backstreets with the organ position empty and a light shining down on the organ just really a, a beautiful tribute
1: and there was no organ so you really had a feeling got a sense of what was missing when danny wasn't on that stage
0: and and, and this show of course is also an archive release
1: and it's actually a, a really interesting show it was almost it's almost an E street retrospective because there was at least one song from every E street album um 73 to 87 they even had brilliant disguise in there
0: For all our talk about the narrative, and and it certainly was there in 2007, starting with this show in Tampa, really the narrative of the Magic Tour changed. He still was doing the stuff about the country, but the show became much more about the band and camaraderie and, and what they had lost. And that really played out, especially over these next few weeks here, right after danny's funeral bruce told long stories about danny from the early days and he he clearly was was very impacted as you would expect by danny's loss and it was the first time they'd ever really experienced anything like this of course danny was the first e street band member who unfortunately passed away and i think what bruce did here and and you tell me your thoughts with, with the way he tailored the show from this point on especially for these next few weeks it was really effective
1: well the first thing he did was magic got dropped so that fits in with what you're saying about he he got away from the he was moving away from the narrative that he had created in 2007 and, and early 2008 living the future was still there and most of the five pack that ended the end the main set were still there uh, devil's arcade got dropped even uh, more often more often than not actually from this point forward and even at the show in tampa he did racing in the street in that spot which worked really well but as you were saying he yeah he he said he going back into the box and pulling stuff out and this performance of sandy without danny and then then they did growing up with that beautiful story about looking over the hill at, at his funeral after his funeral was was very touching but it was the fact that he as you said, he focused, he was focusing on the band and, and, of, and of what they meant, what they the music that they made together through all those years. And that became the focus for the for the rest of the tour.
0: Certainly the rest of this leg in particular and and the next show in Orlando opened with the first ever rock performance of Blood Brothers. First and, ever and only. <laughs> yes. Could also, uh, of course, we're going to say this a lot. And, and we said this the last time, released the entire Magic Tour because so many of these shows are, are really special. And and I think Orlando, I wasn't there and you weren't there. But from everything we heard, this was was a very special show. The Blood Brothers opening, the, the story about Danny prior to Does This Bus Stop. And then you got a Roger McGuinn guest appearance, which is pretty damn cool in the encores.
1: Right. And then, uh, OK, I'm forgetting here. Which one of these songs was included on the Magic Tour highlights? Turn, turn, computer? turn. OK. I couldn't remember. But, yeah, it was that was a pretty nice little uh, little combo, and I'm sure that uh, Bruce and Steve were both on cloud nine. Actually, the whole East Street Band was probably on cloud nine a- as they played it.
0: That is some sweet rock and roll, those, <laughs> those two songs. Uh, turn, turn, turn and Mr. Tambourine Man, Roger McGuinn, fronting Bruce and East Street Band. <laughs> that is really, pretty-
1: really good. And then they moved up to Atlanta, and they were sticking with this theme of Early early tour debuts that they brought out "Blinded by the Light" in Atlanta, "Wild Billies" in Charlotte. So they were re- he was really going back to the to the old to the old days with with a lot of Danny emphasis. And as you said, telling the stories, you know, Danny and the giant marijuana plant, and and then Danny taking the taking the buttons off the elevator in the hotel. Danny was a very interesting character.
0: <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> Those stories are pretty funny when when Bruce tells them, and and they clearly, uh, well, they didn't call him the Phantom for nothing. I mean, he he was a, he he was a character. That's true.
1: In in Charlotte, they there was a in addition to Wild Billies, they got the tour debut mm-hmm. of Souls That Have Departed to open it, and that's kind of a different take on on Danny's passing. Uh, this is a prayer for the souls that have departed, and definitely different than what he had been saying otherwise.
0: And again, continuing that run, every show with a different opener, the, some of these, uh, the next show opened with Roulette into Don't Look Back. It really c- crazy that he did that, thinking back on it, because there's obviously no period in his career where he's even come close. Even at the 15 nights at the Meadowlands, he didn't come close to opening every night with a different song.
1: Not at all. I mean, the first six nights alternated between between two songs.
0: Were you at any of these shows?
1: Yes, we were in Charlotte, Greensboro, and, and Charlottesville. Um, that Greensboro show was really hot. Obviously, it's been released as an archive, and so people could hear it. It's, that was one of the disappointing things about that show, was that there wasn't a great tape, and opened with roulette, and to don't look back, I mean, that's a boom, 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 and then the radio nowhere to make the third boom. And then we were actually kind of pretty excited to hear Mary's Place. It was a tour debut, and it was fun to, to hear it not bloated out to 18 minutes.
0: Yes. We don't want the bloat of Mary's place and a very effective song when it is the five or six minute compact rock version.
1: Right. Exactly. I think, although I think it was still like seven or eight minutes. But now you want to hear something very frustrating about the Greensboro show, Hal? Sure. Well, you'd live by the sign, you'd die by the sign. So uh, some kid had a uh, a sign for sunny day. So he plays it after after Mary's place. You you want to know what was on the handwritten set list for that spot? Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me. None but the Brave.
0: That's an ouch.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a big ouch. But, uh, oh, well. Oh, well, it happens. I think Streets of Fire was actually uh, set listed at, uh, in Charlotte. So, yeah, it happens all the time. And then, then we moved up to Charlottesville. And I'm going to annoy somebody, some people, but this was not a good show. They were <laughs> – OK, <laughs> they were just they came out. My, our friend Paul put it put it this way. They had been going on such emotion for, you know, over a week, a week and a half. And I think by the time they got to Charlottesville, they just they just came out flat. It opened with loose ends and it was pretty much I mean, it it was just flat for the rest of the night. It was it was just one of those shows where there was something missing and uh, if you hadn't seen a lot of, a lot of shows for, of Bruce and the band, you probably didn't notice it, but yeah, we walked out of that one going, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> All right. Well, let's look for, look, look ahead to the next one, which for us wasn't until July.
0: And the leg ended in sunrise. The most notable thing about that show is my nemesis song. <laughs> I want to be with you was played as the second song of the night after promised land open, completing the 18th and final show with a different opener. The next show, which would be the first show in Europe, also opened with Promised Land, breaking that string. But I Want to Be With You played, of course, that song I have not seen that I really would like to see. You said you you had stopped at Charlottesville, so you were not in Florida.
1: Right. The the Sunrise show on May 2nd was rescheduled from...
0: from, from the, uh, because of the
1: funeral right from april 18th so we were actually i mean our plan was to have seen the last three shows of of the leg ending in charlottesville so but we so we were not going to fly back down to the sunrise we, we had a good time it's it's always fun to have to, to follow a tour from for consecutive cities and then have a night off and be able to relax one night and then before before seeing the next show look back on that with a, with a lot of fond memories
0: wait a sec Did, didn't you just say you didn't see another show again until july
1: Uh yeah, I did say that. And now I as I'm scrolling here, I realize that's not true.
0: There was one more show in the US before Europe, not part of the tour. I unfortunately did not see this one. You did. It took place at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, a very special show, and they did something there for the first time. Tell us about the show.
1: Yes, it was the first time they did complete albums. They did Darkness to start, they took a little break and came out and did Born to Run. I was less than thrilled with the idea of them doing albums. I thought it was kind of lazy. I uh, still kind of do, but it it worked. Um, they were in the in in the Basie. We had we had amazing seats actually. And the what worked really well was the encores, where he did "So Young and in Love" and "Kitty's Back." Which, yes, I'm saying I liked it and "Rosie" and "Raise Your Hand." All of them had the horn, so I think that took it up a notch. And then. On on Born to Run, on Tenth Avenue, you had you had the horns obviously, and then meeting across the river with Mark Pender providing some providing the the trumpet. That was that was something special.
0: Yeah, as we've discussed before, I'm not the hugest fan of complete albums played at these shows either. But this was a special event, and it must have been really cool to be in that theater and to see those songs. I mean, all in one night, you saw in the Count Basie Theater. <laughs> Racing in the street, back streets, <laughs> Jungle yes, land, yes. Rosalita, <laughs> how could that be anything other than mind blowing
1: uh yeah, and i I went in with less than high expectations and but i was I was blown away by it I, I had a great time in the end, especially as I said at the encores with all the horns and i I loved it, <laughs> looking back, I love it. I just wished it was a again a better recording of it, but maybe one day through the. Through the archive series, they'll they'll pull that one out.
0: Now, I thought what he said was funny. It was the reason why he played darkness first was because he didn't want people to leave and kill themselves or something like that.
1: Yes, (laughs) to start start with the darker stuff and then and then come back with more of the fun. Born to Run, and yeah, and they even it was funny. They even messed up the intro of Badlands, the very first song of the night. They were so used to doing it coming out of another song. Which they they had done basically on the previous well including the magic tour and the rising tour and the uh, reunion tour, they had done it coming out of something else every single time, so they weren't used to doing it cold, so that was that was different
0: well, it just sounds like a great night, perhaps one day they'll release that as well <laughs> I don't know.
1: And, really yeah. they
0: they really should just release everything from from two thousand and eight they have it. They have it.
1: Hey, well, well, let's not let's not stop there. Let's say every night from 12 and 13 and seven. So let's just go nuts.
0: Now, I I think let's wrap up here. Bruce did a performance at the Stone Pony for the rainy school, which he was doing around that time. Then he also made a guest appearance at the Pony on the 17th with Uh, Mike Ness.
1: Yes, We, we missed it by 20 minutes. Oh, we hustled down there. We thought it was one of these late night pony shows. It turns out it was more of a regular time and we got there at 1030 and they left they left the stage at like 10. So and I love the songs that they did together. Uh, Misery Loves Company. I love that song. Ball and Chang. I fought the law. Man, that would have been a hell of a thing to see. And And there's no recording of it. Not that I would have recorded it, but there's no recording of it.
0: Well, and now let's talk about what we're going to do with our show because we're an hour into this and we've only only gotten through the first leg of the U.S. (laughs) in 2008. We have a lot to cover in Europe and, of course, we have a lot to cover when they return to the U.S. Even though we were planning to do it in two parts, I, I think this show, if we go the whole way through to... The end of two thousand eight. Uh, this episode's gonna be over two hours long. <laughs> so, <laughs> two and a half, I think.
1: I should, you're gonna you're gonna I, spend I half an we'll, hour just on those two shows. Come on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let so should we just break it here? Let's just break. Okay, so we'll break it here. The, the U.S. leg, the spring leg, is over. We're gonna come back, and next time we're gonna pick back up with May twenty second in Dublin, and we're gonna go straight through from. The European tour into the U S stadium tour. And of course the events of the U S arena tour that ended in St. Louis and Kansas city. And, and, then, and that's going to be fun to discuss. And so, then
1: we'll, and then we'll wind up in
0: Milwaukee. Right. There was one extra show. Bruce did call the Kansas city show, the finale of the magic tour. So weird. But, but there was one more show after that at the, at, at the Harley festival.
1: So weird that he called
0: it the last show. And then he's like a week later, it's like, oh, yeah, we're playing again. I think in his mind, he just felt like the tour was ending and, and that Harley was going to be a totally different type of show. But whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that next time. All right. All right. So here's our wrap up None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and a part of Evergreen Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast, on the web or at NoneButTheBravePodcast.com.
1: So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flew McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road.
0: Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Peck.